though I gave uh, Mike a mouthful to read. That's a lot, isn't it? I picked it because how it ends with the elders singing, with the uh, creatures singing. The one, the creator, who was, who is, and is to come. If you look at the throne room scene, it's God's perfect presence. Because everything that's been created, every one that's been created, all kingdoms, all universes are all represented there by the creatures, the 24 elders, humanity perfectly represented, you and me, all humans perfectly represented by these 24 elders dressed in white. And God's full presence on the throne. And then when you get to chapter five, it'll be the absolute full presence when he hands it all over to the lamb that was slain. And that's why I picked that. It's because it's one of four places where he has mentioned his presence described as the one who was, who is, and is to come. And to me, that's what Christmas, the advent, the reason for the season, every time that it comes up, that's what it is to me. I don't, I, I, I quit viewing it the way that we normally view it so many years ago. We view it like we view it through our Christmas cards. If we look at our Christmas cards and what we send, you know, we, we, we see pictures of the birth in absolute silence, nothing going on. We sing Silent Night. We picture a scene to where it is pastoral, it's quiet, it's meditative. The views of the shepherds and the kings, Jesus' family stamped in gold foil, made icons, who aren't speaking, just silent. But the not so conventional way of looking at this is that it isn't not silent at all. To me, the absolute presence of God and God finding a way to be completely present, it's awfully noisy, there's a lot going on. Four creatures, 24 elders, thousands upon thousands and 10,000s and 10,000s of angels all joined together, completely present with God. The creator God finding some way to be ever present with his creation, to walk and talk with them, to give them the promise that he gave them when he created them. We are going to walk and we're gonna to talk together. Philip Yancey pointed out a long time ago that one way to view this scene is Revelation 12. You never see that on Christmas cards. You don't see Revelation 12 on Christmas cards, but he says this account uh, differs radically. This is from his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. From the birth stories in the Gospels, this Revelation 12 account. It doesn't mention shepherds or an infanticidal king. Rather, it pictures a dragon leading a ferocious struggle in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and wearing a crown of 12 stars cries out in pain as she's about to give birth. And suddenly, this enormous red dragon enters the picture his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky, flinging them down to the earth. He crouches hungrily before the woman, anxious to devour her child the moment it is born. At the last second, the infant is snatched away to safety. The woman flees into the desert, and an all-out cosmic war begins. There's nothing silent about Christmas. In daily life, Two parallel stories occur simultaneously. 
one on earth and one in heaven. Revelation, however, views them together, allowing a quick look behind the scenes. On earth, a baby was born, a king gets wind of it, a chase ensues. In heaven, the great invasion had begun, a daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. They don't put that on the Christmas cards. I get excited about Christmas every year. I'm still a kid. But especially after the couple months that I've had and, re- and constant reminder that I'm not a kid anymore, there's also a sense of dread and a sense of exhaustion, a sense of longing, and a sense of missing. What's missing here? And every year when it comes, we preachers have this mixture of anticipation and dread. You know what we're afraid of the most? That we don't wanna say something that we already said before. But you're telling the world's oldest and greatest story. And we have the ego to think that we're gonna come up with something new and be able to present it to you excitingly. And believe me, that's all ego, just because I want you to think that I'm smart. But there's nothing new here. And yet there's everything new here. It's the greatest story ever told. And maybe it's a story that can't be told. Maybe it can't be believed. Even in our wildest dreams, that we would think that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Even his name is not a name. His name is a full sentence in Hebrew. It has a noun and a verb and a subject and an object. God is with us. You couldn't give him just one name. You got to give him a sentence. So this story comes again to remind us of a complete Christmas presence. His presence is complete. And to me, what hit me about viewing it through Revelation is that the way that Revelation describes this complete presence is that his presence was, it always was, his presence is, and his presence is to come. That's his complete presence. That is what Christmas brings us. A few years ago, when we studied through the book of Job, I realized that Christmas through Job's eyes is a pretty interesting set of eyes to view it through, this complete presence. Because Job argues for the complete presence of God even after living on earth and what he's been through. So to me, Job talks about the complete Christmas presence, the presence that was. Job is relying that there was a was. And, I, and I, you'll hear me refer to it because I can't quite uh, put it. It's, it's interesting is that he is a was. His presence is was. And so I want to look at it through Job's eyes in Revelation about his presence that was to begin studying this complete Christmas presence. I point out every time that I preach through Job, I should preach through Job again. I think we should go through Job every couple of years. Um, It's a book that without it in the Bible, I'm not sure I could be a believer without the book of Job. Because the book of Job is us. 
He is our son of man. He represents all of our pain and our suffering and shows us exactly how God feels about it. Without the book of Job, I'm not sure I could go on. Otherwise, our cries and our prayers just just go out into the infinite. Are you there? Anyway, I point out every time that the story of Job just might be the oldest narrative in all the Bible. I believe it's told by Moses. It's a story that Moses knows, but I believe that it happened quite a long time before Moses comes along, maybe up to 2,000 years. The story might have occurred just before or just after the flood. It's the oldest narrative in the Bible. The narrative of God uh, at the time. Think of what we know about God, what they knew about God about the time of the flood. How much did they know? Creation, the power that couldn't be grasped, the planet beginning to groan under sin, the people wondering, is that story about our ancestors, Adam and Eve, because they could go through the family tree, they could look, they could see Adam and Eve right there. Methuselah, Noah, their ancestors are right there. Is that story true? Where might he be? Especially if this occurs after the flood. The people that begin to walk the earth after the flood, now what do they think of God? If that's all they know about him. What is God's presence in this time before? What is the was in the was, the is, and is to come? I like that the question of pain and suffering and who God was in all of this comes so soon in the history of God and creation. I like that it happens almost immediately. Because from the fall until now, that's what our planet has been about. It's been about pain and it's been about suffering. And it's been about those of us who are suffering and in pain, wondering if there is a God at all. I like that it happens almost at the beginning. You have a man who worships God. The book of Job begins that way. There was a man named Job who worshiped God with all his heart. And soon this worshiper of God has it all taken away from him. Michael Card describes that, that those, those two days that it happened, that everything was taken from him, he describes it as a holocaust, which it was. He loses his wealth in less than an hour and then he loses his family in the next hour. All of his children wiped out, murdered, dead. And then in the next couple of days, his own health is attacked. He's covered from head to toe with boils. Everything. What's his reaction? How would you react? See, because most of us worship God because of those very things that were taken away. Job praised God every day for his wealth and his health and his family. It's said that sometimes he prayed for his children in case they didn't have time or in case they forgot. Every day. Those children that he prayed for, they were all wiped out by a fire. No, actually, 
Their house collapsed on them. They were all in one place. And how did he react? How did this worshiper of God react? Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. See, tearing his robe, shaving his head, those are acts of mourning. But once he does that, in his mourning, he falls down on his face and he worships the God that he actually believed did this to him. Job worships God for no other reason except that he is God. Could you worship God that way? Could you worship God if, he, if you believed that he took everything away? When you get into the book of Job, it's interesting. You could debate all day long on, on, on whether, or not Job, uh, whether or not God caused this or he allowed this or anything. We debate that all day long. And Job stands there saying, you know what? Your argument doesn't matter. I believe that God did it and he did it personally to me. Right now, God is my enemy because he did this to me. And I want to know why. Could you worship God when your entire reason for worshiping him is taken away? Every earthly reason for praising God is taken away. Could you still worship him? I really believe that Job is that suffering son of man. He has the best that humanity can offer. He worships God for no other reason, for no earthly reason, except that he is God. And Job only worships because he believed that God was. I heard about you. I've heard about you. I've heard that you do do things like this. See, again, I don't believe that God did it to them. But what other evidence do they have? They believe it. Job believes it. I forget what chapter, I think it's chapter six. He, he screams at him. He goes, who am I that you pay so much attention to me? Could you pay a little less attention? Give me 10 minutes so I can form some spit in my mouth. But no, you won't even leave me alone that long. What's Job gonna do, by the way, if he forms some spit in his mouth? What does he wanna do? Yeah. But he said, you won't even leave me alone for that long. This son of man, this human creature, hanging on to worship by the skin of his teeth. Father, creator, when there's no longer any worthly, earthly reason to do so, he is our son of man. He is our representative. He's the one that goes to God throughout time to take every bit of our pain and our suffering and pound on God's door until he listens to him. He pleads with God for us. See, it makes no sense, this planet. Certainly not from Job's view anymore. Nothing makes sense on this planet anymore. The only sense he can make of it is that somewhere, somehow, there was a God who was. Remember his plea to God through his human experience. God, are you with me? 
He goes, maybe one of the reasons why I have a, such a hard time getting a hold of you is that you are not a mortal as I am, that I can answer you, that we should come to trial together. There is no umpire, there is no mediator, there isn't somebody between us who might lay a hand on us both. You're God, you can't understand a son of man. You don't understand humanity. This is why the, you do things to us. You don't understand what it does to us. You don't feel the way we feel. You know what I need? I need somebody who can touch us both. I need somebody who can, knows, what it's feel, knows what it feels like to be a son of man and knows what it feels like to be a son of God. I need somebody who knows. Need someone who can understand, who can mediate. You, God, are divine, but you need a mortal representative. Yeah. That's what I find so fascinating about Job. With no other evidence absolutely whatsoever, he still believes that God might do this for him. He's asking for a son of God and a son of man. His friends hammer away at him saying that God can't be approached by a sinner like you. See, his friends back him into a corner that he cannot get out of. His friends were supposed to be there to make him feel better. And when they finally begin to speak to him, they say, you know what? I don't know what you did, but certainly God is angry with you. Certainly you are a greater sinner than all of us. Because they believed that Job was being punished for the man that he was. Backed him into a corner he could not get out of. What's Job's argument then? I don't know. You might be right. There is a couple of times where Job actually agrees with him. But he says, sorry, I went one ahead. He says, my friends are my scoffers. <laughs> my friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God, but they tell me that I have no right to weep to God until I do something about whatever this sin was that I committed that warranted this kind of punishment. You can go to God, they say. You can go, but you know what you gotta do? You gotta get your act together first. Just tell us what it is. We'll help you. Or that a man might plead with God as a man who pleads with his neighbor. Again, he's looking for a pleader. He's looking for somebody to plead on his behalf. If not me, then where's my representative? Again, who's he asking for? A son of God and a son of man. Because he knew somehow this presence was. There was a was at one time. I'm appealing to that. I believe the was is still there. I believe the presence is there. I just need to get to it. I just need to be part of it. I want to be in the presence. I need to plead my case. 
I need an advocate, a neighbor, a friend, one who pleads for him. In the meantime, I know God's got this. I don't get it now, but someday. Three chapters, I'm sorry, three chapters later, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and that at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. With absolutely no evidence whatsoever, Job formulates an entire theology of the resurrection and of the Redeemer. He's absolutely remarkable. By the way, he goes from asking about it, he then asks and pleads again, and then three chapters later, he knows that it will happen. In, 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 in all of these chapters, actually not three, from chapter six to chapter 19, did Job's circumstances change one bit? What was it that taught him that went from this is what we need to I know that this is what we'll have. I don't get it. I will, I'll be dead, all right? I don't get it, but I know that my redeemer lives. You know, the only thing that taught him that was living for however long it took with his pain and his suffering. And no, that's not a lesson that I've learned in the past two and a half months. I wish I could. I told you in the newsletter, I wish I could learn that. I can't right now. I'm at the stage where saying, you know what, whatever lesson it is, I don't want to learn it. And I'm sick of it. And the book concludes actually with what? The greatest thing that could ever happen. He pleads, he pleads for how many chapters? 26, 27 chapters, and then what happens? God shows up. (laughs) You wanted to talk? Let's talk. And I hate the way that some people preach about God showing up. He gives, first thing he does is he gives Job his resume as creator of the heavens and the earth. It sounds like he only showed up to shut him up. And that's the way that sometimes it's preached. Who is it, he shows up and says, who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Who is it here that doesn't know what they're talking about? We have to remember that Job is sitting there with who? With both arguments, Job says, I'm not a sinner. Well, I might be. Yes, I'm a sinner. I don't know what sin this was, but I want to talk to God. I believe he was there. I believe he was was, and I believe I can talk to him. I need to go to him. No matter where I've been, no matter what I've been through, I get to talk to God. There's his argument. The friend's argument was no. If you are a sinner as we think that you are, how how do you think that you could dare approach God. Those are the two arguments sitting in the room. God shows up and says, who is it that is talking about me without any knowledge? Who was it that really was? Who is it that darkens my counsel? Is it Job? Or is it his friends? Job has advocated that even though God seems to hate him, maybe because he's a sinner, maybe because I'm not, that God would still allow him to seek him, to plead his case. He's asking for fairness. He's asking to enter into the presence that was. 
And he imagines God would maybe have a witness when he, when he gets here to be able to understand us both. Or is it Job's friends who seem to speak for God, try to convince him that all this bad stuff wouldn't happen to a good man, it wouldn't happen to a righteous man. God would never listen to a sinner that makes God punish him so bad. You need to confess whatever you did and try to begin to make up for it. Then maybe, just maybe, when you're a good boy long enough, Job, you can approach the door to God. Who is it that darkens my counsel. But to Job, God calls out to Job and says, oops, oh, the verse was already there. I couldn't see it. Brace yourself up like what? Like a man. I created you to be upright. Although I'm tired of being upright. I created you to be upright, upright so that you could be with me. See, God shows up in the first you know, sound of his voice. Where do you think Job went? He went on his face. And when I hear, brace yourself up like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. What I hear is, Job, you've been asking to talk to me, man. Let's talk. Let's talk. Get off your face. I appreciate the worship, I really do. But what I really wanted to do was walk with you and talk with you. Let's talk. See, it may sound again like God just wants Job to shut up, to contend. Same word in Isaiah where, where Isaiah says, shall the clay question the potter? Did the clay ever turn around in the potter's hands and say, what are you doing? Why'd you put the handle there? Contend. You know, it's the same thing. Job assumes that God wants him to shut up and the Lord, because he, I, that one I don't think I have. Oh no, I missed it. You'll have to believe me then, okay? Job answered the Lord, see I'm of small account, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. I'll shut up now. Because all God said was, brace yourself up like a man. I'll question you. You answer me. We're going to talk. Job says, okay, I'll shut up. But what, what happens next, though? And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Anyone who argues with God must respond. Come, let us reason together. Let's argue together. I want you to respond Oh, it was there. You don't have to take my word for it. It's right there. I'm of small account. I'll shut up. And the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself up like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Job says, I'm gonna shut up now. God says, no, you wanted to talk. Let's talk. Sit up, man. Let's talk. I'll question. You'll answer. Let's keep talking. You're on the right track. I only need to remind you that, yes, I'm the creator and you're the creature. I'm the uh, unlimited. You're the limited. I only wanted to remind you that you have a limited view of what's going on. Which, by the way, is the lens that we should always be looking through when we approach God. 
We don't know what's going on, do we? Let's keep talking, Job. You're on the right track, man. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Who was it that was darkening his counsel? It wasn't Job, it was who? It was his friends. He's not finding fault with Job that Job doesn't know, quite know what he's asking, he, but that was Job's argument. I don't know what I'm asking. I am looking at it through creatures' eyes. I need a son of God and a son of man who can open my eyes up to this. That's all I wanna do. I wanna walk and I wanna talk with you. Brace yourself up like a man, he tells Job to the friends who say that a sinner as big as Job can't approach God, he says, you don't know what you're talking about. And you know what? I'm gonna ask Job to pray for you. <laughs> and if Job prays for you, maybe, maybe I'll save you. Spoken right. Job maintains the character of God. He knows that was. Job understands the was. He didn't want pets when he created Adam and Eve. He didn't want creatures to be treated the way that all the other gods treated them. He created us to have free will and to love as he loves us and to be able to walk and talk with him. And by the way, that walk and that talk is even for the people who at the time don't even love him. at the time may question him, at the time may not even believe in him. God says to everybody, I understand exactly where you are. All I want you to do is for us to walk and talk a bit. Let me reveal my presence to you. And then you can choose. But I love you, no matter what you decide. A face-to-face -face relationship. Job's, Job knows this because of this moment of being with him. He knew that he was. He had to have known that the presence was in order to be able to reach out to him, in order to be able to plead to him for all of this. Job remembers that God used to walk with us and created us too. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. The only thing missing from that picture was the children that he used to walk with. And he speaks out and he says, where are you? I'm walking, I'm talking, but you're not here. The children are hiding. And even after the fall, even after the fall, even after they chose the, the, the enemy over God, even after they, they left God and decided to follow this enemy, this new way of living, it sounded good, it sounded better than God. Even after they chose to do that, God shows up the next day, offers them the same relationship that he offered them the day before they fell to walk and to talk with him. Does it matter to God what they've done? 
No, not when it comes to the walk and the talk. It doesn't matter at all. See, if I were God, I would cut off the walk and the talk after they decided that they were no longer gonna walk and talk with me. But with God, the invitation's open. The only way that they're ever gonna know whether or not they even want to be forgiven for their sin, even, the, even to have sin pointed out to them to know that they could be forgiven and, and confess and be forgiven and to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, the only way they're ever gonna know that is to be in the presence of God. See, the church has a tendency to take sinners and lock them away, get them away from God. He can't, he can't talk to you. We're more like Job's friends. Go in the corner and the closet and, and, and become sorry for your sin and then maybe you can come out and walk and talk with God. And God says, no, where are you? But Lord, I, I didn't choose you. I chose somebody else. I'm following somebody else now. Don't you think I know that? Let's walk. Let's talk. I am the was. And we'll talk about the is next week. And I am to come. And I want you with me. We have a tendency to look at God with us, this presence, as a point in time, a point in history. Two to six BC, the fullness of time, finite words, finite dates in finite time. But the presence is full. The presence is was, is, and is to come. It isn't finite. It's infinite. Man. Two and a half months, who, who messed my thing? He's rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. For he himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's speaking of the son, but even before the son became the son, he was. See, heaven was a created place. As far as we know, there are other created uh, universes. Right now, the one that we know the most about, at least from description, is heaven. And who lived in heaven? Angels live in heaven. Creatures we don't quite understand. We think we got it nailed. They're just people with wings. I don't think so. If they were just people with wings, how come every time they showed up, before a human, the first thing they had to say was what? Fear not. Why? Again, the presence, the presence is different. Get what I'm saying? The presence is different. Job was scared when God showed up. Why? Because there wasn't that intervener. 
I think, I think God had great patience with him. I think God did something to be able to allow him. Otherwise, the first thing Job did was hide from him. He says, don't hide from me, talk to me. Then the next thing he did was say, no, I'll shut up now. I'll, say, I'll stand here, but I'll shut up. God hadn't quite revealed to Job what Job was asking for, a son of man and a son of God. So I always wondered with these angels, whoever they are, whatever they are, I think they're physical, I think they're created uh, beings, I really do, but I don't think that we have them quite figured out. But I always wondered about them because it says that in Revelation 12, it says war broke out in heaven, Michael and who? And his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels have fought back. Seventh-day Adventists believe that Michael is who? You ever been asked why? See, the thing is, is that we've always been taught that Michael is Jesus, but we don't know why. I've looked it up. Ellen White doesn't tell us why. Nobody tells us why we believe that Michael is Jesus. And it was pointed out to me by Dr. Dukan, Dr. Jacques Dukan. He says, it's there in the name, Michael. If Emmanuel means God is with us, Michael, Michael, it's, it's a sentence also. There are three parts to this name that come from other words. Me or my meaning who, ha from homo meaning like, homo and homo, like, a pair, okay? And then L is always who? God. Who is like God? Michael's name is a sentence too. You with me? Maybe God incarnated himself into this angel called Michael so that he could walk and talk with them. You ever wondered why there are unfallen angels? Because they have the presence also. Michael was that presence. See, Michael is always leading angels when he shows up. What if Michael, I'm, just, I'm not saying it's absolute, but what if Michael is the incarnated son or the was for angels? That he could walk and talk with them. I'm not sure that angels walk. So maybe it's walk and fly. Maybe it's walk and float. All I'm saying is that Michael wasn't enough for humans either because every time that Michael shows up, we freak out. See, when did the son incarnate? Who is like you, O God, it says. I'm sorry, I'm behind here. Okay. Who is like you? The prophets have recognized who is like you. It's a rhetorical question. Is there anybody like God? So who is like God? Only God. Michael is God. See, we as Trinitarians, when we're Trinitarians, and, and, and be careful, uh, there are places in the, in the church that are beginning to wander away from the Trinity. I am more attracted to the Trinity every day as much as it infuriates me. But we, we as Trinitarians, we believe the Son is fully who? Is fully God and fully man. Okay? All I'm asking is, is there was there a time or is there still a time when God was incarnated in an angelic being and they named him Michael? They named him who is like God. 
See, and we get Michael after we get Jesus. We then can refer to Jesus who is like God. There is no one like the Father. Nobody knows the Father like the Son. With me? Or am I teetering too far away? See, the prophets know him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? The answer, no one. Michael, Michael, the prophets utter his name. So I'm just saying that when you look at that in Hebrew, it says, Michael, O Lord, who is like you. All my bones, the psalmist David says, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? You deliver the weak from those too strong for them, the weak and the needy from those who despoil them. By the way, the incarnated part of the Trinity, the one that walks in the flesh, the word become flesh, he has a particular job. And the job is to come for the weak and the needy, which is who? the creatures that he looks like, the creature that he became. Merry Christmas, right? Deliverance for the weak and the needy. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first, I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God. Michael is even in the words of God himself, who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and set it before me. Who has announced from of old the things to come? Who has announced the was? God says, don't forget, there always was a was and is and is to come. There's no point in time. There's no infinite. See, see, we're, we're the only creatures that live from a beginning to an end. We're the only creatures that took time and put it on a timeline. And we think that everything, we think that the incarnation is a point in time, a date, one that we celebrate, December, April, so forth and so on. But we forget that he doesn't have to live that way, that he takes the eternity of time and he enters that timeline to make sure that you and I can continue to walk and talk with him, to make sure that if we choose to, that if we accept his love, then there will be no end to our time either. And we won't have to look at dates from beginning to end anymore. When I was a kid, I wanted to celebrate Christmas every day, didn't you? Well, guess what? with the was and the is and the is to come. It'll be Christmas every day. Because the presence is full. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but what was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Revealed. The was became revealed. And then of course becomes the is and the is to come. Behold, a woman shall be with child, and he shall be called Emmanuel, my full presence. The was. See, Job knew this. Job had faith that there was God. 
and I'm going to speak to him. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just before he chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. When did the Son incarnate? The was, eternally ago. He allows us to live in the eternal beginning, even before there came the end that we put to the beginning. Job may have been the first suffering son of man to call out for the divine son of man. I know he's there. Peter says he chose to do this for our sake. That moment in history where he entered and became the was, that was for us. He revealed himself to us in that way for our sake. Just as I believe that there was one point in time when he revealed himself to the angels for their sake. You have to remember that the angels, I mean not as a whole, but that the angels have fallen too, a third of them. I always wondered, is Michael their salvation? We don't know, do we? He chose me. When did he choose us? Eternity ago. And he put it into a point in time that we could understand. He put himself into a situation, into a body, into an environment, gave himself a mouth and ears to speak and to listen and legs for us to walk and talk together. The word became flesh and walked among us. The was. Jesus pleading to the Father, talking about what his full presence is to us. Lord, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, Satan would kill just to prove a point. Satan would touch Job's skin just to prove a point. Satan would murder his children just to prove a point. The nature that we decided we would take on. See, all of a sudden now his presence then becomes about theology and the right doctrine and what to say and when to say it and who belongs in that presence and who doesn't and whether or not we're going to be Job's friends or whether or not we're going to be Job and believe that there was a was and believe that we opened the door to everybody to enter into that presence. And if you think that somebody is excluded from that, then you are speaking words without knowledge. Who dares to darken my counsel to think they know what they're talking about? Job, listen to him, he says. We need him, we need the was, as he was before, as he is, and as he will be. We speak rightly when this season, when we realize that he has been with us, he has been before, and he's been the was, and he's been the is, and is to come. Those are the reasons for the season.
to remember that. He never would have made it to is and is to come if he wasn't a was. So I'm celebrating his presence today. I'm celebrating his complete Christmas presence in the was. Please come for our Christmas program next week. It's gonna be beautiful. It's gonna be a blessing. And it's so good to be back with you again.